Let me uh, open with a word of prayer if I could this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, God, so much that we could be in your house today with your people uh, to worship you. Uh, But Lord, before we come to our time of worship, uh, we're grateful that we get time for instruction in your word. And we pray that you would come as not only the author of that word, uh, but also the one who teaches and instructs our hearts. Uh, Lord, may you open our eyes to uh, see you as you are. Uh, Father, may we uh, may this lesson even lead us to worship, to delight in you, and to glory in your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, uh, this morning I'm going to uh, sort of follow Noah and Josh's lead in the sense of the outline that I uh, that I'm going to be using. Uh, but it's going to be different in the sense that I don't have this fancy PowerPoint presentation to give to you. And uh, we most likely won't be breaking up into small groups just because I knew that we would have a smaller number of people here today. So we may just be one big small group uh, this morning. Uh, but anyway, if if I were to put up a picture uh, that sort of symbolized the lesson today, I would put up a picture of the rainbow. And of course, not the LGBTQ plus when, uh, a rainbow but the original rainbow uh, that talks about God's covenant faithfulness, because that's what we're going to be looking at today from Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 22, where we read, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today is uh, faithfulness. And like I said, we're going to follow... Uh, the outline that uh, Josh and Noah uh, have sort of laid out where we sort of define the term, talk about how God demonstrates that faithfulness, and then also what that looks like in the life of the believer. And so let me just ask you, what, is, what does Paul mean when he uses that word faithfulness? What is, what is faithfulness? Steadfastness. Okay, steadfastness. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. Yeah, it's a, you're, you're somebody that, that keeps your word. You're dependable, if you want to use that word. Trustworthy, maybe another word that you might use. Um, you know, it is interesting. Uh, I've been sort of reminded as we've been going through the fruit of the Spirit to look at the different aspects. And as we do come to that, defining those terms, it's like, yeah, I know what that word means. But when you have to sit down and sort of define it, it makes it sort of challenging and stuff. But it, it's uh, one definition I saw is it is that which evokes trust and faith, that which evokes trust and faith. So it is that sense of trustworthiness or dependability. Now, uh, before we jump into uh, how this relates to God's character and stuff, let me just ask you this. How would you have evaluate the faithfulness of the times in which we live? How would you evaluate the faithfulness of, of the culture in which we live? Some people are smiling. Why are you smiling? What, what are you thinking? I, I think our... We follow our leaders in a lot of ways. And when you think of popular culture, you think of politicians and their political promises, which obviously are generally not very faithful. But also, I I think of 
things like um, we, we uh, kind of idolize movie stars and things like that, and they're all about like not keeping their word, or, or even, I, I love sports, football coaches, a lot of times they'll say, oh, we're gonna stay here forever, coach here forever, and then next season they're moving on to another school to coach there. And uh, when I think of like the, the popular figures in our culture that we kind of hold up as examples, in general, they're not very faithful. To okay. That, that's good. So, yeah, so the, sort of the heroes that we have, whether it's in politics or sports or wherever, that don't seem to be very faithful, don't keep their word. What else? Anything else that comes to mind? Do you think that's the overall tone of our culture, that there's uh, not a lot of faithfulness, not a lot of examples of faithfulness, or is that going too far? Yes. A lot of be faithful to yourself. <laughs> That's the main priority. I guess you can, you know, you can do what you need to to other people, but just be faithful to yourself. Okay. Whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. Whatever that means. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit today. So there's, there is a lot of waffling back and forth. I, I was thinking about this this week, and I thought it's interesting because, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm old and I just don't know it, but I don't think of myself as that old. And I think in, in the day and time in which I live, to see how much things have shifted. I remember as, as when I was younger, if a man gave his word about something, it was binding as much as a contract was. You know, if they just said they were going to do it, you could just count that it was going to be done. And if it didn't, there was actually a good reason. You know, that's where they sort of say, your word is your bond. You know, that's sort of where that phrase came from. And, you know, it might be followed up with a handshake or something like that. But, but you know, it would, it would be done. And then I remember when things sort of shifted. And, and then now it became uh, only what was in writing was binding. You know, if I say something, then, you know, then... That may or may not be true, but it's only what's writing is what you can hold me to. And now we've even moved beyond that. So even what's in writing isn't necessarily binding because you have these big advertisements, you know, uh, high speed Internet for only so much or this car for only so much. And what's your first thought? What's the fine print? What's the fine print? Because you know that they don't really mean what they say. There's all these clarifications that's going to happen. So we've even moved beyond what's been writing is what you're bound to. So, you know, it, it is truly a sense in which there's not tons of faithfulness. But lest we think this is only particular to us, would somebody read Proverbs 20, verse 6? Proverbs 20, verse 6. We're going to be looking at a number of scriptures today, so have your Bibles ready. Well, let me read it. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? So, you know, we see that this isn't particular only to our culture, but this is a human condition, the sense of, of a struggle to be faithful. But praise God, God's not like man, right? He is faithful in all he does. Um, uh, one of the uh, scriptures I was going to look at, but for the sake of time, we may actually, uh, I may let you read this on your own, but Psalm 100, 
talks about the faithfulness of the Lord. You know, we know it as make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. But at the end of that psalm, it says his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And there's probably nothing that describes the faithfulness of God more than him as the covenant-keeping God. Uh, that God uh, that of the Old Testament shows us a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And God entered into, and, and there's a term I read this week, I just thought this is a great term. Uh, God entered into a promise-laden relationship, a, a promise-heavy relationship with his people. Uh, we see that, first of all, with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and Moses, and David, as he expresses the covenant of grace over and over and over again, giving more and more details. And so, therefore, as you look at the history of Israel, it really chronicles a faithful God who is true to his word, but that's sort of done along the backdrop of what we were talking about earlier about humanity, the unfaithful people who constantly turn their backs on God. Now, I, I want us to think just for a moment what that covenant faithfulness looked like. And so I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to answer this. And that is, how does God display faithfulness to Israel in respect to his covenant? Okay, how does he show faithfulness to Israel in the Old Testament uh, in respect to his covenant. Or maybe another way to ask that is, what does God's uh, interaction with his people look like in the Old Testament? You know, God gives his law, and then what usually happens after God gives his law? What, is, what do the people do? Golden calf. The golden calf, okay. Yes, they, it just doesn't take hardly any time before the, the ink is dry on the command, well, or in this case, the stone, you know, uh, in stone, that, uh, that they, they break that command. So what does God do at that point in time? Does he just send lightning from heaven and smoke them? He rescues them. He rescues them. How does he do that? What's, what's one of the ways, one of the means that he uses to rescue his people? Hardship. Some of it, like sometimes there is smoke, lightning from heaven, and some of the primary instigators are taken out as an example of you shouldn't be doing this. But sometimes it's it's hardship of being oppressed by the foreign peoples when they're in the promised like judges that happens over and over again. Yeah, they're oppressed for a certain time until they repent, and then a judge comes along and, and rescues them, and then uh, they serve God for a while, and then. Back down. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say he, he always sends he always sets up a rescuer. Yeah. Ah. Yes. Yes. They might not be a perfect rescuer like Jesus, but right. Every time is a rescuer that's an imperfect picture that gets more and more perfect as we get closer to Christ. Yeah. So we see like the judges that are raised up, even Nehemiah and Ezra that we've been looking at on Sunday mornings, uh, different ways. Uh, he also sends his prophets too. Uh, to, to come and he and those prophets are sort of I heard described one time and I think this is very appropriate that they're sort of like covenant prosecutors you know they come and they're sort of like the prosecuting attorney they come to, to, to bring the guilt of the people and to show them their sin but unlike a prosecuting attorney the prophets uh, are the mouthpiece of God 
not to condemn the people only, but really to, to turn their heart back to God. And sometimes the language is really graphic. I mean, you know, you look at Ezekiel 23, where uh, Ezekiel describes the people of God as a whore, as a prostitute, you know, that's that's turned from the Lord. And so you, you have this kind of... Uh, uh, coming after his people to call them back to himself. And so God perseveres in his love for his people. We see that in Hosea. But what usually happens when that that occurs? The people do usually eventually repent, don't they? But then, so God you know, reminds them of his law, and then the whole cycle starts all over again, right? And that's what the Old Testament is. It's just sort of this... This cycle uh, that we see happening, and the low point, uh, you know, at least for the Jews, uh, was eventually when Jerusalem was destroyed, and uh, and God had His people carried off to, to exile instead. And and amid all the flames and the rubble, sort of, you know, what we've been talking about in Ezra and Nehemiah, and Nehemiah specifically of rebuilding the wall, the events that precipitated that destruction of Jerusalem. In the midst of that, while God is bringing his discipline upon his people, God also sends his prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah prophesies some amazing words. Take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3. And if somebody would read verses 21 through 23. These are very familiar words. You hear Christians quote these words all the time. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. Who would read that? Okay, Daniel? Just one second. Starting verse 21? Yes, 21 through 23. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yeah, so we, we, we hear those words and we quote those words all the time, you know, as, as God is faithful. But you have to understand that these words were given in the context of God's discipline of his people. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not generically faithful and his mercies aren't new every morning all the time. But, but this, these are especially words of hope as these people were in the midst of of God sending them into exile. And then, Daniel, could you read verses 31 and 32 as well? God goes on to further clarify this. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he has caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Yeah. So the Lord will not cast off forever. And so God proved faithful to his word. He did, we know, he brought the people back from exile and uh, reestablished his people. But we see God's faithfulness not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as as well. And uh, it is in Christ that we see that because Jesus is the only one faithful to the covenant demands. Um, and it's in him that God keeps his promises because we as human beings, we're not able to do so. I mean, you think back to Genesis 15, uh, that God made a covenant with Abraham. And, you know, uh, if you know anything about covenants in, in the biblical days, uh, that oftentimes the way a covenant would sort of go down is you'd have this more powerful king and this weaker king. And this more powerful king 
would say to the weaker king, who represented all his people and everything, he would say, I will care for you, and I will give you these covenant blessings. You know, I'll protect you, I'll give you food, I'll give you clothes, give you a place to live, all that kind of stuff. There's all these wonderful covenant blessings, but he says, and therefore these are the, the requirements that I expect of you, and if you don't keep those requirements, then there will be these covenant curses that will be upon you. And there was usually some ceremony that the weaker king had to perform in order to show that he would receive these covenant curses if um, if he did not keep that. Well, in Genesis 15, verse 17, as God is making this covenant with Abram, uh, we read, uh, when the sun had gone down, and by the way, I, I probably should give this clarification, God had told Abram, take these animals, cut them in half, and except for the birds, and put them you know, off to the side, and, and then we read, the sun had gone down, and it was dark, and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which was God, passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And what we see here is that when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he actually, God, is the one who says, if you do not keep this covenant, which he knew that they would not, that God would take those curses upon him, which we know he did in Jesus Christ, and uh, therefore paid the penalty for our sins. And so Christ, is our Redeemer King, is portrayed as the faithful one. And we see that in a number of places in the, in, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, he's referred to as the faithful witness. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Revel Revelation 19.11, it says his name is faithful. It just comes right out and says Christ is, is faithful. And so Jesus' ministry is marked by faithfulness, first of all to his Father, but then also to us as his people. And so Jesus came to earth to fulfill a mission and the mission of redemption. Now, uh, what do we mean by redemption? Uh, do you know, Carver, what redemption is? Not to put you on the spot. I'll help you out if you don't know. So, um, like giving us, giving someone a second chance. Yeah, well, it it is sort of like that. It's it's really sort of the idea of buying back something that belongs to you. Okay, the way that I heard it described to me when I was a little kid was this. A little boy had a boat, and he was playing with it in the, the lake, and the boat got away from him, and it disappeared. And uh, a couple of days later, he's walking in the down the street, and he saw his boat in the shop. Somebody had found it, and they claimed it, and so they were selling it. So that, boy, that boat, even though it was that boy's boat, because he had lost it, he had to purchase it back. He had to redeem that boat. And Christ, or God, has done that for us. He's made us, and he therefore we're his because he is our creator. But because we have fallen into sin and coming under the dominion of, of Satan, then God purchased us back. And so that's sort of the big picture of his faithfulness. But if you look at John 17, if you would, like I said, we're going to be looking at all kinds of different texts today. Uh, John 17, we're going to zoom in in a little bit more detail on the account of Christ's mission that he had and uh, that he, he sort of reveals to us as he prays his high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And in verse 4, 
we see him referring to this mission. He says, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work or that mission that you gave me to do. And we'll see three ways that Christ uh, proved his faithfulness to God and to us as his people in this mission. Uh, if I could have somebody read John 17, uh, verses 6 and 26. Could somebody read John 17, 6 and 26? Okay, Chris? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 26. 26, yeah. Um, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, so we see in both these verses, that we, in one it says that I have manifested your name, which means I have made known your name. He clarifies that in verse 26. But what does it mean that Jesus has made known God's name? That's the first thing we see, that, that Christ manifests God's name. But how did what does that mean to make known God's name? A part of it has to do with the, the incarnation. Um, God has been incarnated and been revealed to us in the flesh, um, his character. And the, the names of God are really succinct summations of his character in a lot of ways. Okay. So Christ is coming to share with us the character or the essence of, of who God is. And uh, um, especially if you, you think about it, I'm not going to get into this, but our study on Wednesday night, we talked about how God is a spirit. And, uh, and, and in that, we see God's, you know, we oftentimes think that just means God doesn't have a body, which that is true. But it also means that God is, is, is great. That, you know, if, you, if I took an image and I put it in front of you, there would, you, your mind would all of a sudden have limitations about whatever that object is. If I put a rock, you would think that object can't fly. Or if I, you know, put a bird, you would think that that object can't swim underwater. And there would be these limitations and stuff. But with God, there's no body, there's no form, there's no limit. And so God portrays himself for who he is in all of his greatness and all of his magnificence. And that's part of the reason why we don't have images of Christ in our Sunday school curriculum or in our worship or anything like that, that we might let God's word define who he is. And so we see God in all his transcendence, but God in his grace and knowing our frailty sent his son in the image of man. Now, it's interesting that the Bible never describes Christ. So we still don't have a form before us. We still don't have an image that's uh, portrayed before us that we lock in. Rather, Christ uh, showed us what God's essence and what his character looks like. Does that all make sense to you? Um, Yes, no, maybe, whatever, sort of, kind of, I don't know. We'll find out. Go on, Pastor Rick, move on. Okay, so, you know, so that image is, is uh, it's important that he convey because God is so transcendent and our finite minds can't comprehend God as infinite. 
But God chose to reveal himself in a way that we could understand as flesh and blood. And, and that's what John was referring to in John chapter 1 and verse 18, where John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Christ is revealing to us the Father, and he has been faithful to give us a perfect representation of God. And so we look into the face of Christ, and we see God as we look in Scripture. The second thing we see that Christ did um, to show his faithfulness was he preached the word. Now, that may sound rather simple, um, that he preached the word, but you know, just like in any day and time, the world does not like the word of God or the things of God. And it was no different in Jesus' day. And even the religious leaders had certain ideas of who God was and how they put the scriptures together. And Christ came and challenged many of those things and clearly uh, laid out before them uh, who God is and what the way of salvation was. Uh, to which they did not really like. And, and I think it's uh, important to understand that it's hard to do the right thing when the right thing's not popular. You know, um, just like in Jesus' day, to, to share and to preach the word of God as it was, you know, many of the Old Testament prophets were, were uh, stoned or were killed in some other way because the people of God didn't want to hear the word of God. And, uh, and so for Christ to preach the word of God was something. And we sort of understand that to some sense because as our culture becomes more increasingly secular, as we want to say it, we can have a tendency to sort of cave when it comes to conversations about God and about spiritual matters and stuff. You know, I mean, oftentimes do we not think, you know, why do I need to be the lone dissenter? You know, why draw this kind of unwanted attention to myself. And so it's not that we deny God outright, but we may just be silent. You know, we may be at work, we may be talking to a neighbor about some kind of conversation about God, and we sort of hold back about that. Or maybe it's even a family reunion or something like that. And rather than speaking the truth of God's word to the topic at hand, we're, we're silent. But Jesus Christ did not give in to that kind of pressure. And instead, he spoke the word of God. He was faithful in preaching the truth that leads to eternal life, even though it made the masses want to silence him and eventually, as we know, to kill him. So, so Christ came uh, and he showed his faithfulness in, in sharing with us who God is, showing us who God is and preaching the word, but also in keeping his people uh, safe as well. Um, would someone read um, John seventeen twelve? You know what? Did I give you the verse for he preached the word? That was John seventeen eight, by the way. If anybody's taking notes, he preached the word was John seventeen eight. But uh, he protect he keeps God's people is John seventeen twelve. Who would read that? Okay, yes. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, so so Christ was faithful to keep those 
who are, are his. And we see that, that he would do that with his disciples at least, oftentimes by comforting them when they were distressed or maybe even speaking the truth in such a way that would con- convict his disciples and would keep them from sin. And so Christ has this character about him that is that of a steadfast friend who never lets loved ones go. He, another imagery we see in John, at least, is of a faithful shepherd who, who guards and protects his sheep. As a matter of fact, uh, if we could, I know it's a little bit longer, but turn to John 10, if you would. Um, would somebody read John 10, 10 through 15? Chase, can you read that? So 10 to 15, right? Yeah, 10, 10 through 15. <clears throat> the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, and then could you skip down to verses 27 through 30 and read those? My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we see that sense of of Christ preserving uh, the faith of his saints and and for caring for them and, and not allowing... The, the evil one to snatch them out of his hand. Um, but we also see, as Christ has left, uh, that he has sent the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has sent the Holy Spirit to minister to his people today. And it is the Spirit that, that sustains us and keeps us. Uh, if I might read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, uh, it says, In him, that is in Christ, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And and we see that sense in which God God preserves us. Um, We see in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because Christ has completed his mission. So... uh, God's faithfulness is not something that we just read about, but it's something that we experience in our daily lives. And and I want to just ask you this morning, as we sort of think and apply a little bit about God's faithfulness, how do we see God's faithfulness in our lives? What are some of the ways we experience God's faithfulness in our lives? Okay, God's not faithful at all. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. No, I'm just kidding. Sunday. Do what? Sunday. 
Sunday? With the faithful proclamation of the word. There you go. Yes. Don't make it too hard, guys. He governs the world, makes the sun to rise, and provides for all things in the world every day. Yeah. Hebrews 1 talks about how he sustains all things, right? Uh, what else? Through other believers. Through other believers, yes. He is, uh, uh, what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come. Um, he is expanding his kingdom until Christ comes again, um, even now, across the world. Yeah. And he's continuing to seek and to save the lost. Um, and that sort of, I don't know that anybody's mentioned this yet, but he's given us salvation. You know, that's uh, a great way that he's shown his uh, his faithfulness. He, he continues to protect us, and not only to keep us, but even guard us against temptation. First uh, uh, Corinthians 10.13 talks about even when we face temptation, he is faithful. Uh, and he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. There's just so many different ways. I, I just want to us uh, to think about that just even for a minute, uh, just to encourage you to consider God's faithfulness in your life this afternoon, and and just take some time just to worship and to praise Him. I wish we had time this morning to do that, uh, just to, to pray to Him and give thanks uh, to Him. But, but I want you to think in one sense, for those of you that are more construction-minded, I'm not overly handy with my hands, but I do know this, that what they put in concrete to reinforcement, reinforce it is rebar. And God's faithfulness is sort of like the rebar uh, in our concrete as Christians. It, it reinforces us and holds us up in our lives as Christians. And so there's so many ways that God is at work in and through us uh, because he is is faithful. So now I, I just want to look for the remainder of our time at, at, at the Christian's faithfulness. Sort of the this is sort of the so what to uh, God's faithfulness to us. Because God is faithful, so what? So where do we go from this glorious reality? What is our response to, to God's faithfulness? Well, in one sense, it's quite simple. In gratitude. We are to be faithful as well, okay? Um, we are united to Jesus Christ. If I might go back to the first couple of lessons where we sort of did an introduction, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and we said we need to remember that this is a relationship of, of Christ, who is the vine, with us as believers who are the branches. And so we are united to Christ, who is the vine of life, and so Christians are called to exhibit the hardiness of faithfulness that's characteristic of Christ, that his life flows in us, that as he is faithful, that he gives us his faithfulness and he makes us faithful, not somehow that like he fills us up with faithfulness and we can detach from the branch and now we can be faithful. We don't as Christians go try harder and to see what we can do apart from the branch or apart from the vine. As the branch, we have to be in the vine. But as we abide in Christ, as in our union with Christ, there is that sense in which we exhibit that faithfulness. And faithfulness really relates to the very essence of discipleship, if you think about it. I mean, what is sort of a summary of discipleship? But to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. 
And so Jesus doesn't want just a, a half-hearted effort. He wants all of us, and he wants all of us all the time. Now, I don't know if you think about that that much, but I was sort of challenged by that myself this week, and I thought, you know, how much of my life is Christ just really sort of a part of it? You know, to what degree is Christ just another piece of my identity or uh, my lifestyle rather than being the focus, rather than being my identity? Uh, you know, is he sometimes really just more a part of that? I was reminded of uh, Jesus' words where Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And yet how easy it can be for us, even as his children, to to turn back, to look back to the ways of the world and say, oh, I like that, I like that. Oh yes, Jesus, I still want you part of my life, but I also want all these things as well. And so there's sort of this uh, demeanor, this tone of the Christian that echoes the tone of our Lord, as he said in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. There's a sense of, God, uh, I am yours. What do you want? What do you, what, what do you want to do with me? Uh, I give it to you. Now, that's not to say we don't live life. That doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities and things to do. But if there is that tone of not my will but your will, that sense of laying down my life, denying myself, giving it everything to him, we give ourselves to the agenda of his kingdom, of living his commands by his values and his priorities that distinguish us from the world, you know, I just think our lives would look way differently. You know, in in the midst of that, even the day-to-day things, our work, our time with our friends or family or or our recreation or all those things, you know, might look different. It would look different if there was that sense in which Christ was our all. Now, if that sounds very uh, daunting to you, be encouraged that the very same spirit that anointed Christ, right, Uh, to accomplish his mission is also the same spirit that dwells in us. And and those aren't just words. That's that's true. And so what that means is, is that not only can we cultivate a life of faithfulness, but if we are a child of God, you will cultivate a life of faithfulness. And and in doing so, we must uh, do like Christ did. If, if If you remember what I said earlier, that Christ, when he came in his mission, what did he do? He sought to be faithful to the Father, but he also sought to be faithful to God's people because he came to purchase a people uh, for God, okay? But it's interesting that the first priority must be faithfulness to God. We must not seek to be faithful to others, you know, but first to be faithful to God And from that then flows our faithfulness to other people. If you look at your life and you think, wow, I'm I'm really convicted by this lesson. I need to be more faithful. You know, that doesn't mean go out and and try to be more faithful with your friends. It means to first and foremost be faithful with God. 
And, and out of that will then flow uh, a more faithful life with others. I think about Christ and his words to uh, in John chapter 4, where he says uh, that his food was to do the will of his Father. The nourishment, the thing that, that fed his soul was to do the will of his Father. And uh, that is what that faithfulness to the Lord looks like. That, that, that is our desire. Uh, anyway, any, any questions or comments about that? Okay. Well, that being the case, what does faithfulness look at life in the life of a believer? And I would suggest to you, and I think it's funny Daniel said this, but uh, I would suggest to you it means being true to yourself. Okay, now lest you cast stones, lest you cast stones, uh, this is actually not my words. This comes from the Apostle Paul. Okay, he actually doesn't use these exact words, but it's this idea. The Apostle Paul says that we need to be true to ourselves. Okay, now, uh, but what he means by that is that we need to be true to ourselves as we are in Jesus Christ. As we are in Jesus Christ. We need to be true to our redeemed self. And, and I want to make that point. And of course I'm doing it in a sort of silly, crazy you know, uh, way that relates to our culture. But, but I, I really mean this because I think so often we can focus on our struggle with the remnant of the flesh. And, and we might even uh, see ourselves mostly as someone who's just constantly struggling with the flesh and we sort of forget that there is this redeemed person this we are that we are redeemed in Jesus Christ and so we are to be true to ourselves as we are in Christ now if you would take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 2 I'm actually going to look at a verse from chapter 2 uh, one from 4 and one from 5 but look at Paul's reasoning here in Ephesians 2, he says, And you were, 2.1, Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he sort of describes who we are. But look over at chapter 4 and verse 17. And Paul uh, goes on and he says in 4.17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then as he's progressing in his argument in chapter 5 and verse 8, chapter 5 verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, be true to yourself and who you are in Christ. Okay, so uh, Paul is describing the terms of sort of before we were in Christ and after. And he speaks of God's intervention in our lives to bring us from death to life. And then he issues a call for us to live according to that. If you remember the words of Ephesians 4, verse 1, he talks about living in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, be true to yourself in Christ. Be true to the redeemed you. 
And so every admonition and command in Scripture is based on that union with Christ and God's handiwork of grace in our lives, right? And so that's where passages like uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 are, are so apropos. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, right? Behold, the new has come. And so we have this new nature. Therefore, the call to faithfulness is not a call to try harder, but rather to know who you are in Christ. To know who you are as that redeemed man, that redeemed woman, that redeemed young people. And then prayerfully seeking to live that out in Christ. To be true to yourself in Christ is so important. Any questions? I want to close today uh, by reading, uh, an, well, it's parts of an interview, okay? And I don't know if you guys have heard of Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. He was president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. At least that's what it was called. I'm not sure what it's called today. But he was their president back in 1968 to, to 1990. And a uh, very godly man. He had a very godly wife, Muriel, uh, who was his partner in ministry. As The more I read about them, the more I sort of think that's sort of like my wife. I got one of those uh, great wives as well. Uh, she not only supported her husband, you know, in entertaining and doing all that needed to be done for a seminary uh, professor's uh, or president's position, and Bible college position, but in her own right, she was a well-known speaker. She was a radio uh, host and stuff. But then something changed in Dr. McQuilkin's life, and he talked about that in an interview in 2004 with Christianity Today. And I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to give you an excerpt uh, that will sort of give you the gist of it. But it is rather lengthy, but I think uh, fairly easy to, to follow along. So listen as I read this, if I could. He said, It's been a decade since the day in Florida when Muriel, my wife, repeated to the couple vacationing with us the story she had just told five minutes earlier. And he said, Huh, funny. That's never happened before. But he said it began to happen occasionally. But he goes on and he said, Three years later when Muriel was hospitalized for tests on her heart, a young doctor called me aside and said, you may need to check out the possibility of Alzheimer's, he said, for his wife. Well, he said, Muriel never knew what happened, was happening to her, though occasionally, when there was a reference to Alzheimer's on TV, she would muse aloud and say, huh, I wonder if I'll ever have that. Well, it didn't seem painful for her, but it was a slow dying for me to watch the vibrant, creative, articulate person I knew and loved gradually dimming out. He said, I, I approached the college board of trustees with the need to begin the search for my successor. I told them that when the day came that Muriel needed me full time, she would have me. I hoped that would not be necessary until I reached retirement, but at 57 it seemed unlikely that I could hold on until 65. They, um, they should begin to make plans, but they intended for me to stay on forever, I guess, because they made no move. 
that's not realistic and probably not very reasonable, I thought, though I appreciated the affirmation and confidence in me. Uh, so began years of struggle with the question of what should be sacrificed, ministry or caring for Muriel? Should I put the kingdom of God first, hate my wife, and for the sake of Christ's kingdom, arrange for her to be institutionalized? Well, he said, people who don't know me well uh, have said, well, you always said God first, family second, and ministry third, but I never said that. To put God first means that all other responsibilities he gives are first too. Sorting out responsibilities that seem to conflict, however, is tricky business. Well, in 1988, we planned our first family reunion since the six children had left home. A week in a mountain retreat. Muriel delighted in her children and grandchildren, and they in her. Banqueted, banqueting with all those gourmet cooks, making a quilt that pictured our life, scene by scene, playing games, singing, picking wild mountain berries was marvelous. We planned it as the celebration of our 40th anniversary, although actually it was the 39th, because we feared that by the 40th she would no longer know us. But she still knows us three years later. She can't comprehend much nor express many thoughts, and those not for sure. But she knows whom she loves and lives in happy oblivion to almost everything else. She is such a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. One blessing is the way she is teaching me so much about love. For example, God's love. She picks uh, flowers outside, anyone's flowers, and fills the house with them. I wrestle daily with the question of who gets me full time, Muriel or Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He said, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity uh, or faithfulness. Had I not promised 42 years earlier before in sickness and in health till death do us part? As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I always loved. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. So I tell you that story because it's an illustration of faithfulness that holds concern for God at its core. And you may say, well, that doesn't make sense, Rick, because he gave up ministry that he might care for his wife. But as he said before, you know, that's a commitment that he had made, a lifelong commitment that he had made to love and to care for his wife. And regardless of his career, regardless of all the excuses that could be made, for what he needed to say in ministry, he chose to do that which he had vowed to God that he would do, and that was to care for his wife. And such faithfulness displays a determined love, a, an unwavering commitment, and a sacrificial heart. It's true to its word, as somebody said earlier. It's, it's tenacious. Uh, we might even say it's sort of pig-headed. One of the illustrations that I came across when I was reading this whole thing on faithfulness was somebody said faithfulness is sort of like a rusty bolt. It just won't give way, right? 
And I think, boy, that's a great picture. The next time I have a bolt that I can't get undone, and I have WD-40, and I have everything else I'm trying to use to get that bolt out of there, I'm going to be thinking about God's faithfulness. That's what it's like. It's unmovable, unchanging. And we must admit such faithfulness is attractive and reassuring to, to all of us. And that is because we serve a God, brothers and sisters, who is, is faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Any other questions or, or comments before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, so much for your faithfulness. Father, forgive us when we think of you as a glorified version of ourselves, as something or someone who is, is greater than us and yet falls short of who you truly are. Forgive us for our, our idolatry. Forgive us, Lord, for not seeing your faithfulness as it is, rooted in, in your character. Oh God, um, we oftentimes, even in our struggle with sin, think about things from our perspective and our sin and what we've done and how we relate to you. And, and we think that that somehow changes you. Forgive us, Lord. Help us instead to delight, to praise you, to worship you, God, to rest on your faithfulness, and especially as we live our lives in a world of uncertainty and change and, and a world that seems to be degrading. Uh, we pray, oh God, that our hope may be firmly fixed on you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and pray that you might take these thoughts that you have given to us, that we may bring them into worship as we uh, come to praise your name. May we exalt in your faithfulness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.